The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. what we did learn as we did our research and our writing is that human nature is extraordinary and people rise to the occasion or some don't but most all the people in our book certainly rose to the occasion and this human spirit is indomitable the the key thing is to look at how people react to conflict and how how the individual what the individual makes of the awful predicament they're in when they're in a bit of warfare so it's a quite different approach That was Anne McMillan and Peter Snow talking about their new book on ordinary people who've been caught up in conflict. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Peter Snow and Anna McMillan, a married couple of distinguished broadcasters who've now collaborated on a new book, War Stories, Gripping Tales of Courage, Cunning and Compassion, which explores the stories of 34 ordinary people caught up in extraordinary moments over the past three centuries. Our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, met up with them in London to find out more. So often when we look at wars across a time period, we think about the bigger picture. So we think about, you know, how many casualties there were, who won, who lost, that kind of thing. But with your book, you've sort of zoomed right in and you've looked at these individual stories, moments in wars. What do you think we can learn from wars by looking at these individual moments? Well, I think, I think the important thing about it is this, the first time I personally um, have written a book about people rather than wars. I mean, the, the hugest distinction, I think, is that when you're writing about wars, you're writing about a much more global thing, a great event, a terribly important political event as well as a military event and so on. But this, this time, we've really hit people before the war. So in other words, we, we, the, the key thing is to look at how people react to conflicts and how, how the individual, what the individual makes of the awful predicament they're in when they're in a bit of warfare. So it's a quite different approach. And it's been absolutely fascinating and very exciting. And having Anne, who's superb at this, this, this idea of making, putting people first, has made all the difference. You know, I think both Peter and I were journalists. I, I worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in London for many, many years. And we covered a lot of conflicts during our careers. And I think what we found when we did cover these conflicts, that it was talking to the people who were involved, who had firsthand experience, that really made the story matter. So that's what we've tried to do in this book, is to look at a conflict, but through the eyes of an individual. What do you think that adds to our understanding of an event of World War One, for example, by zooming in on one person? I think that it probably doesn't tell us too much about general rules about conflicts, but I think what it does do is it shows people how people react in in extraordinarily challenging uh, circumstances. And so we, I'll give you some examples. Um, there's a nurse in our book called Augusta Chiwi, who was half Congolese and half. Belgian, and her father um, 
brought her from the Congo where he had been working back to Belgium when she was a young girl. She wanted to be a teacher. Uh, black people were not allowed to teach in Belgium before the Second World War, so she became a nurse. Uh, she was working in Brussels in 1944. The Allies had pushed the Germans back out of Belgium by that point, so she thought, great, I'll go home for Christmas and have a Christmas with my father and my, his sister, my aunt, who had brought her up, um, and without Germans occupying my country. And off she went to a place called Bastogne, which turned out to be on the front line during the Battle of the Bulge when the Germans in December 1944 unexpectedly decided to launch a huge counterattack against the Allies. So there was Augusta, one of two nurses in the entire town. There was one American doctor there looking after the American troops. There were many of them, thousands. And so these two women had to work with this doctor looking after hundreds of injured American soldiers. Um, at one point, some of the American soldiers from the deep south of the USA said, we don't want a black woman looking after us. And the doctor looked at them and said, that's fine. You can die. I mean, the Chiwi story really symbolises what we're after. We're not telling the story of the Battle of the Bulge. We're not telling the story of the Second World War. We're, 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 we're within the framework, which we briefly refer to, the context of the war, we look at an individual's extraordinary experience. And that's what this book is all about. These are snapshots of 34 people together in wartime. And their stories in themselves are what is so fascinating, not so much the story about the war. But I think in answer to your question, what we did learn as we did our research and our writing is that human nature is extraordinary. And people rise to the occasion, or some don't, but most all the people in our book certainly rose to the occasion. And this human spirit is indomitable. I particularly thought one of the best aspects of the book was you didn't just focus on the sort of well-known stories. I mean, there are a few well-known stories in there that I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with. You know, you've got Benedict Arnold, yes. the American America's famous turncoat. Um, but you've also got these stories that people won't probably have come across before. Um, so where did you find these stories? Great fun. I mean, very great fun, I say. I mean, very exciting. Um, nothing about war is fun. But a good example... Uh, is the example of a friend of ours down in Winchester who uh, we were having a meal with him and uh, we were chatting about what we were doing. Like so many people we know, they've all come up with stories about granddad and all this sort of stuff. But this chap said, well, my great, great, great uncle was um, in the charge of the Light Brigade and he survived it and he wrote a diary and it's in our loft. <laughs> Can you imagine? So we a chap called Edward Seeger. And so we said to him, my goodness me, can we look at it? And we looked at it, and it's amazingly good stuff. It's one of the stories. It, it's actually the first one. Under the title, we themed this book. So each each uh, each person comes under a heading. This, this, this Edward Seeger's heading is Courage. So under Courage, we've got three people, and under you know Innovation, we've got two or three people, and so on. But um, Edward Seeger's story is ex extraordinary exciting and impressive, and his account of how he was in the charge of the Light Brigade and what, he, what happened to him, and how he escaped death a couple of times, is, is absolutely, really absolutely sort of mesmerising. Out of all of the people that you've got in the book, who's really stood out for you? I, I, there are two that I love, two of the characters in our book. Well, all of them I love, but two that I particu I'm particularly fond of. One is uh, Christina Scarbeck, 
who was a Polish uh, woman who was so appalled when the Germans invaded Poland in 1939 that she came, traveled to London and volunteered to become a spy. So she ended up working for the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, and she was sent back uh, into Poland. Uh, she went illegally, so she did things like climb over the Tatra Mountains in a blizzard to get there. Mm-hmm. And once she was there, she sent back reports to the British about uh, German troop movements, and she helped set up the Polish um, underground. But she had such an interesting life, and she was so brave. She was said to be Winston Churchill's favorite spy. She was also (laughs) extremely beautiful and had lots of affairs on the job, so that was rather interesting and unexpected. But she had the most tragic end in her life because after the war, she really had couldn't find a job. She really didn't settle into civilian life very well. And she eventually ended up working on a... Uh, cruise ship and she had an affair with one of her fellow workers and when she ended the affair he stabbed her to death in a really dingy corridor of a second-rate London hotel and it just to me that was so sad that this amazingly brave woman who had done so much to help the allied cause during the second world war had such a sad ending but my other unexpectedly favorite one is a chef called Alexis Sawyer who um, was the Jamie Oliver of his day in the 19th century in mm. London. He was extremely um, popular. He wrote lots of books. He set up the Reform Club kitchen. It was the new Reform Club in those days in Pall Mall. But he was so appalled by descriptions um, in the Times about the situation of British soldiers in the Crimea, particularly the, the fact that they were, some of them were dying from bad food. So he volunteered to go to Crimea at his own expense and he cleaned up the kitchens and the big military hospitals and then invented something called the Sawyer stove, which he took out into the field and taught British soldiers how to cook on on these stoves healthy, nutritious meals. And he also had a sad death, and so, you know, which which made me sad. He came back to England after the Crimean War, and uh, he was came back to Britain in um, to London in uh, 1857. And he had caught Crimean fever when he was in the Crimea, which is usually caused by drinking uh, unpasteurized milk. And he was very weak, and he lived a very <laughs> uh, very very sybaritic life. He smoked, he drank, he was always rushing around, and he. He died at the age of, of 49. So some of the s- stories that happen after the war, to me, are as interesting as what went on in the war. They're still using his stoves. That's right, they were until very recently. Yeah, they right? went to the Falklands, Sawyer's stoves. Sawyer's who were your favourites? Oh, my favourite. Well, I mean, I think probably I have to say my favourite is a rather amusing one. In a way, it's, it's uh, this cheeky chappy called Franz von Vera, who was a, a German Luftwaffe pilot who... Um, was in the Battle of Britain, and he took his plane, measured it 109, he, he was bashing up RAF pilots one after the other. But unfortunately, a Spitfire found him in, in, in June 1940, just the beginning of the Battle of Britain, really. And uh, he, um, uh, he was shot down. He shot down in Kent. A, a copper walked up to him and said, uh, hello, hello, what are you doing here? And he said, well, actually, I... I, um, I should be at the dinner party in Germany tonight. Uh, you, you'd rather stop me doing that. So the policeman laughed and said, you're getting me in a prisoner of war camp, mate. Wheeled him off to a, a prisoner of war camp. Von Vera r- promptly escaped from there uh, and went to another prisoner of war. He was recaptured, went to another prisoner of war camp, escaped from there, walked up to an RAF station, pretending to be a Dutch pilot with the RAF, uh, and said hello to the station officer. Um, I just want to borrow one of your hurricanes to get myself back to my base in Scotland. I'm a Polish pilot flying with with the Scots Scots RAF. 
and the station officer said, right, um, I see. I just better check that out. And Von Vera said, fine, can I just go to the loo? <laughs> so he, he raced out of the station officer's office while he was the station officer trying to get through to RAF Dice in Scotland. Uh, walked out to the loo and then dashed out of the front door, up the control tower, brand new hurricane sitting there. Aurea Farrakhan, bit of a fighter. He didn't know how to drive it, unfortunately, so he jumped into the cockpit and shouted at the engineer downstairs. He said, look, I'm usually in Lancaster bombers. Can you show me how to drive this thing? And the engineer showed him how to drive it. And then uh, he was just about to press the button to start the propeller running when he felt a pistol in his, in his forehead. And it was the station officer who said, I've checked this dice. You're not kosher, my friend. You know, you're going straight back to prison. Well, the Brits were absolutely exasperated by this bloke by this time, this cheeky German. So they sent him off to Canada, where, you know, I mean, Canada, blimey, miles from Germany. And the guy immediately was in Canada. He said, my train's going quite close to the American border. The Americans are neutral so far in this war. 1941, they wouldn't have ended the war yet. And so he jumped out of the train, walked to St. Lawrence River, which was frozen over, walked across St. Lawrence River into America. And Americans said, oh, well, hello, welcome, old chap. You, you want to get back to Germany? He said, yes, please, back to Germany, another Iron Cross. Amazing story. In all of the stories in this book, it's like watching something out of a film sometimes. Almost unbe unbelievable things yeah, happen. That's right. That's right. One of my favourites in that sense um, was... was um, uh, Butch O'Hare, after whom O'Hare Airport is named in Chicago. He was, he was an American hero because he shot down lots of Japanese planes in the Pacific in the Second World War. But the only reason he ended up becoming a pilot, a naval pilot, was he went to Annapolis um, Military School, was because his father was a crooked lawyer who worked with Al Capone, the, <laughs> that terrible, uh, terrible uh, crook in, um, in Chicago in the 1930s and 40s. And his, uh, uh, Butch O'Hare's dad was really determined that his son would go to the best military college in the States. And Butch wasn't being accepted anywhere because his father's reputation was so bad. So his father turned in Al Capone. Al Capone was sent to jail on the mm. evidence help, that Butch O'Hare's father helped supply. So Butch, Butch's story was, for me, absolutely incredible because of this Capone connection, as well as the fact that he was an extraordinary hero. I think you definitely find that throughout um, lots of normal, everyday people influencing or crossing paths with these big names. Um, we talked briefly about Christina, and I wanted to bring her up because I wanted to ask you about the role of women in wars. I mean, we, you sort of think of a war as being quite a male-dominated thing. You think of the soldiers on the front line. So what was the role for women? Yes, I mean, I think you've raised a very good point because I, I came out of no pressure at all from Anne, my wife, to include women because there's no, there's no, immediately you start looking at stories about war, you hit women left, right and centre. They played a huge role. And not just nurses and sort of people who drive ambulances, but people who fight and people who, I mean, like Christine Scarbeck, Anne's mentioned him already, this extraordinary woman in the SOE and the spies and so on. And there's the other wonderful story, which Anne can tell us about in more detail, because she did the research on it, Ursula Graham Bauer, a wonderful British woman who was in, um, in, 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 in India and Burma, on the very borders of India and Burma, when the Japanese came in. And she was very, very, very influential with the Naga tribe on the, uh, the foothills of the border of Burma and India. And she played an extraordinary role. She was actually a guerrilla fighter, effectively. She was the first guerrilla fighter 
female guerrilla fighter in the British Army. Little known story. She was an anthropologist who uh, went to India and was fascinated by this Naga uh, tribe. Well, tribes, there were a few of them. And she, they were headhunters. And she, she was, she, they adored her. They, in fact, some of them thought she was a, a reincarnated goddess. They absolutely adored her. And when, they, when the, the Japanese were getting very close to India, the British army decided to ask, um, set up a special force. And they asked farmers and local people and Ursula Graham Bauer, because they knew she had the support of these Naga tribesmen. And they asked them to form patrols and patrol the border between uh, Burma and India in the northwest of India. And so Ursula ran these groups of patrols and she would hide in the bushes and she would sleep in, in ditches and she would jump into the jungle the minute that they heard Japanese coming. But they were really important because they, A, would were able to to identify where the Japanese were crossing. But also, if a British or American or Allied airman got knocked out of the sky, they would guide the surviving pilots and crews to safety. So she's, an ex- she's a wonderful woman and most unexpected. I would say two of the most moving stories in the book uh, we have are women, uh, written by women. One is Helen Thomas was the wife of the poet Edward Thomas in... Uh, in 1917, and he went. He very soon after um, she wrote this diary, he went off to Arras and was killed in 1917, at the beginning of 1917, in the Battle of Arras. And she writes very movingly about their final goodbye, about the time they had together. It was a difficult marriage, but uh, you, she, she adored him, and it was it's a most loving piece of prose that she writes. Another one is Madeleine de Lancey. In 1815, her husband was an ADC to Wellington and was hugely, awful, awfully badly wounded in, in the Battle of Waterloo. And so he, he was taken to a cottage and Madeleine found out that he was there and she went and looked after him for two weeks until he died. And, and she just hoped, the, the two weeks extraordinary. This sort of from day to day, she's hoping he might make it. The doctors come, the doctors go, and then finally he dies. And she writes this absolutely beautiful piece, which um, Charles Dickens referred to when he said, you know, one of the things that made me cry more than anything else when I read it was this extraordinary account of Madeleine Lancey's time, last hours with her husband. Beautiful stuff. And then there's Lady Florentia Sale. Oh, yes. <laughs> Come on. Are you talking about Well, all right. I mean, do you want to hear more about it? Yes. Her? No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this wonderful couple in the first Afghan war, um, Sir Robert... Uh, Brigadier Sir Robert Sale, Brigadier, well, he was a major general by, by the, at the end of his life, uh, General Sir Robert Sale, who had a wonderful wife, a very formidable lady called Florentia, Florentia Sale, Lady Sale, and she was rather rather keen on diary writing. Well, mercifully, she was sent off with Robert to Afghanistan when they occupied Kabul in 1839, the time of the First Afghan War. And um, she wrote a diary about it all. And it was sort of pretty boring stuff about sort of cricket parties and uh, tennis parties and so on for a while. And she had a nice garden and you know, kept nice flowers in the garden, great fun. But then suddenly there was a great rebellion, which became the First Afghan War. And the poor old Brits and Florentia and her husband and her daughter and her, her grandson were caught up in this chaos and they were attacked. Uh, and, and, um, and so you have this extraordinary six-month story of Florentia, her husband 
went off to try and find the escape route for the Brits, but 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 couldn't get back into into Kabul. So she was completely on her own with 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 a few other women and and some kids, and they were hooked around Afghanistan by this terrifying tribal leader called Akbar Khan, who kept threatening to kill them and then torture them and then say, it's okay, you're with me, you're perfectly all right. A horrific experience, all in this diary. Wonderful story. I love the end of that story too, because she died in South Africa a few years later. And on her gravestone, it says, here lies all that could die of... (laughs) Yes, all that could die of Florentia. (laughs) It's really interesting to read history from a woman's perspective as well, because I think one of the big criticisms of history is that it's often we get the the male perspective of events and things, but you've sort of unearthed these diaries and letters from these incredible women, and we're hearing it from their their side of the story, which is a slightly different angle than you'd get from the, their husband or... Or whoever. Well, I've always thought that was very important. Peter has written a number of military history books, mainly about the Peninsula War and then also the Battle of Waterloo and the burning of the White House in 1815. But I, I used to read his books with great uh, interest, but also a, quite a critical eye. And I was always saying to him, tell me about what they ate and what their wives were doing, who followed them, and how their children survived, and you know how they had medical care. I think those sort of social details are so important to to really understand history, particularly conflict. Yeah, I mean, in the case of the writing about Duke of Wellington, of course, he, he had a wonderful um, uh, sex life. I mean, great stories pop up all the time. Poor old wife had a terrible time. And then, but then, when you get to the burning of the White House, another book I wrote, you have this wonderful woman who's the wife of the president. James Madison, his wife was called Dolly, Dolly Madison, and she plays a huge role in that. So that man, Dan, did, made, did a great deal to persuade me to write more about Dolly Madison and, uh, and Wellington's girlfriends than I would otherwise have done. I think people are, they're fascinated by social history. They're fa- they want to know how people lived their life. They want to know what it was like in that time. And, you know, that's what you've done in this book. But we felt it was really important um, because of our own experiences covering conflicts and talking to people on the ground and realizing that it was their stories that really mattered. So we 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 um, we had a, we started out with a huge long list, as you can imagine, of possible subjects. But we we made a point of only writing about people who had written about themselves in diaries or letters home or letters to friends, or we talked to people who knew our subjects who are no longer living. And we also interviewed a number of people who are still living and are in the book themselves. So that was absolutely important to us that we had first-hand accounts of what happened to these people. What made someone's story worthy of inclusion in your book? There must have been so many people to choose from. Yeah, I mean, we really made it a principle that we would only go for people whom we could get primary source material about. And what I mean by that is a, a contemporary with their lives, either they themselves describing what it was like behind the machine gun uh, or someone who was with them at the time describing in great detail. I mean, one wonderful example is the, the Victoria Cross which uh, Johnson Bihari won in Iraq for his performance of the tank warrior tanks in Iraq. And um, uh, he's still alive and he's written a very good book. And um, we used a great deal of what his descriptions were because he writes it himself. He tells the story himself. So he's a very good example of the kind of person we're looking for. We were looking for people whose own eyewitness accounts or eyewitness accounts of what it was like to be with them tell the story. So this first-hand account thing is absolutely critical. And we made that a absolutely vital principle. It, 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 so often when you look at people, for example, who won the Victoria Cross, 
They don't say anything about it. And there aren't many interviews of people who describe what happened when, you know, old Joe Bloggs charged them, charged the enemy outpost. Um, but 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 there's just the citation describing how brave they were. It's not enough. You need much more than that. And we went for people about whom there's a great deal of information. I suppose that is one of the um, risks of looking at war stories about heroic people or people who've done amazing things. Like people are modest, aren't they? For example, Nicholas Winton. Um, no one knew his story for years and years and years. Would you like to tell us about Nicholas Winton? Yes. Well, I'd like to also say, a lot of the people in our book we would probably never have heard about had it not been some sort of accident of fate. And Sir Nicholas Winton is a very good example of this. He set up trains to carry children, Jewish children mainly, from Czechoslovakia to London in 1939 before um, the Germans invaded Poland and the Second World War started. And Nicholas Winton was a very modest man and he didn't really talk about this extraordinary thing he'd done during the war. He went on with his life, he got married, had kids. And one day, he and his wife were cleaning out their attic about 50 years after he had organized the trains. And his wife came across this box that had scrapbooks in it. And I think he had mentioned it to her at some point, but hadn't made a big thing about it. So she'd sort of forgotten about it. But she started looking at the, the scrapbooks. She said, what is this? And there were pictures of children and letters and all sorts of information. And Nicholas said, well, this is what I did. I would bring these children to, to England and then I would put ads in papers and I'd get newspaper articles written and ask people to adopt these kids temporarily until after the war and when they could go home. And he he managed to get nearly a thousand children out of Czechoslovakia. We interviewed three of them who are now obviously in their 80s and all three's parents perished in concentration camps and all three have done terribly well in life and they didn't know who had saved them until his wife discovered the documents. She told a friend who told a friend and they ended up um, notifying That's Life, the Esther Ranson program on the BBC. And they managed to trace quite a few of the, what they called Nikki's children. And they did a program. They invited Nicholas Winton to come in. He didn't really know what to expect. And sitting beside him was a woman who suddenly said, well, Esther Ranson said, are there any of Nikki's children in the audience? And this woman next to him said, yes. And then it was it's quite extraordinary to watch this on television. You can see it on YouTube. Most of the people in the studio put their hands up. And Winton was overwhelmed. And it, But it, later, he, he, people would ask him, why didn't you make a big thing about this? He said, well, it was something I did, but I had other things to do, and I moved on. But we had quite a few stories like that. The the um, One of my... Canadian stories is somebody called Laura Secord, who was a heroine in Canada because she walked 20 miles during the War of 1812 to warn the Brits that the Americans were about to invade. And I always thought that this, you know, is a well-known story forever. But in fact, she did this in her 30s. 50 years later, the Prince um, Regent, the Queen Victoria's oldest son, visited Niagara Falls and was handed uh, some testimonials, some first-hand accounts by people who were involved in the War of 1812. By this point, Laura Secord was in her 80s. And he took them back to London, read Laura Secord's, and was so impressed that he sent her £100. So dear old Mrs. Secord, who people had totally forgotten about, suddenly was headline news in Canada. Why did the prince send her £100? So people found out her story that way. So a lot of the the stories that we write about are ones that probably would never have been known except for an accident of fate. We, we Brits owe, owe Laura Secord a lot because she saved British lives at that 
big battle in on the on the Niagara Heights and so on. But um, of course, the Canadians they can remember it with chocolate, don't they? Yeah, there's a chocolate company called Laura Secret. <laughs> oh yeah, that's mentioned. Isn't <laughs> Delicious <it>? chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I noticed with a lot of the stories, people just did what they had to do. That's the sense that I got. So if you ask them about it now, they would just be like, you just did what any good person would do. And that's how these amazing feats of courage happen. You've always been fascinated about how we would react yes, in a I've situation always, like that. I've always been fascinated by how ordinary people would react if faced with war. I mean, a good example of that in the book, for example, is Joshua Chamberlain, who was a, a, an academic in America in 1860. And uh, he was getting on with his job as professor at a university in, in Maine, kind of the Maine, state of Maine. And uh, the war started happening, the, the, the South supporting slavery against the North or against it, and there was a big punch-up as you all the American Civil War. And Joshua suddenly said, I'm going to go and fight. And I'm sure he didn't know when he went off, like I wouldn't know or you wouldn't know, none of us would know, how we would react when a machine gun started firing at us. Would we run for it? I'd probably run for it. Or would we sort of say, come on, chap, let's go and bash up that machine gun. But Joshua found himself in the in the latter, latter group. He was for charging against it. And he... I mean, he risked his life several times. He's very lucky. He was wounded several times in the Civil War, but he behaved magnificently and was a brilliant commander, became a general. He started off as nothing in 1861. By 1865, when the thing collapsed and the South surrendered, he was a, a terrific success, a great brave man and a general. So he's an example of someone who reacts well to war, but some, some I'm sure, I'm probably me included, wouldn't. But he was very noble, too, at the end. I like this, the end of his story. Yes, at the end of the Civil War, when, when Robert E. Lee surrenders to the uh, to Ulysses Grant, the, the Union commander, the Northern American commander, the whole South collapses, and there's a parade uh, by the surrendering Confederate soldiers. They march past, almost in shame, really, they march past the... The uh, Joshua Chamberlain was 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 had lined his troops up to sort of receive these surrendering Confederates, and as the Confederates marched past, Joshua Chamberlain ordered his men to salute, salute the losers, and this was thought to be very generous but rather foolish. I mean, many many Unionists at the at the time thought how disgraceful to 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 recognise anything in these dreadful Confederates, but Chamberlain thought it was the right thing to do. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Through looking at all these different stories, what were the sort of common threads for you? Like what sort of unites these people? We have grouped our subjects into themes. So we have courage, we have spies, we have medicine, we have innovation. But I and it was funny because when we were putting people into the different themes, we kept thinking, well, that one could fit into that theme too. And I think there are there are a number of, of characteristics that a lot of our, our characters share. I mean, bravery is one of them. 
and courage, of course, and humanity, and just a will to live, a will to help people, a will to get through this. I was going to pick up on the theme of courage. There's quite a few instances of big gestures of courage, the soldier on the front line, and that's what you think of when you think of courage. But in your book, there's also sort of smaller moments of courage, the people behind the scenes, the medics, those kind of people. What are some of the behind-the-scenes moment of courage in this book? Well, I suppose my favourite in that sense um, is uh, the American in Paris, Sandra Jackson, who was a very fine doctor with the American hospital in Paris. And when the Germans invaded Paris in uh, 1940, invaded France in 1940, of course, the, the French were fighting the Germans, but the Americans weren't. They were out of the, out of the war for 18 months after this, until 1941, until Pearl Harbor. So the American hospital in Paris was sort of a curious neutral. I mean, well, the Germans must have known the Americans were all fond of the British and French, but, they did, but the Americans weren't in the war. So the American hospital was spared. And Sumner was a doctor in the American hospital. And so he was allowed to go on performing. But he was almost immediately very careful to, um, although he behaved very well with the Germans and so on, he was very careful to make sure he helped the British for example, pilots who were downed by the German Air Force over France, they may have escaped to Paris, they may have come to his hospital for, uh, for, for, for care, and he immediately tried to get them out to Spain. He tried to, he, he tried to funnel them into the Maquis, into the French resistance channels of escape from France. And so he was a terrific... Right, and then even when the war included the Americans from 41 onwards, he was still there uh, helping pilots, helping French resistance workers, helping people who were opposing the Germans. And he got away with it till 1944. And then tragically in 1944, he, he was, the, the Germans uh, sussed him out and they, they arrested him and took him off with his son and, and his wife to a German prison camp. And, uh, uh, and, and in fact, he, he died in a dreadful way in a ship. It was always sad. Attacked by the Air Force. They thought the Royal Air Force thought it was a, thought it was a, 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 a German troop ship. In fact, it was a prison ship. And, the, and he was he was killed. But but his his courage was he wasn't there in battle, he was there brave enough to recognise that he could do something for the Allied cause just by going on pretending the American hospital was sort of neutral when in fact of course he wasn't. But it's a wonderful it's a wonderful story. And that takes tremendous courage, like keeping up the de, sort of yes. a bit of deceit and knowing what full well what you're doing and yeah, incredible. That's right. That's um, right. It's like courage comes in many forms and that is a good example of one that you might not think of immediately. Yes. Another another example of that is Jonathan Rabb. Rabba, who is, was a German businessman who'd worked for many years in, in um, Nanking, China. And he was there. He was a member of the Nazi party. I mean, he was an unexpected hero. And he, was, he admired Hitler. He thought Hitler was going to put Germany on the right track. Um, he was um, there when the Japanese invaded in the... In the um, just before, well, a couple of years before the Second World War. And it was a horrific time. The Japanese, it was called the Rape of Nanking. The Japanese came in and they raped, they looted. They were absolutely d disgusting, frankly. They had contests to see who could cut off the most heads with swords in a specific time. And they burnt people and it was awful. Anyway, Jonathan Raba set up um, a safety area for civilians and he... he encouraged people to come and uh, civilians, uh, Chinese civilians to come and 
camp out basically in this area, including in his own garden. His entire house, is, as a matter of fact, were full of was full of um, Chinese um, fugitives. Um, so, what actually happened to him? Well, he uh, he came through the war, didn't he? And then he yeah, but he he was told never to speak about Nanking, and he became very disillusioned. Obviously, he lived in Berlin. Uh, during the Second World War, he gradually had to sell all his treasures. He'd, he'd collect, he had a wonderful collection of um, Chinese um, antiques, and he had to gradually sell them all in order that he and his wife and children could live. And he just he had a very sort of sad life. But he wrote but he wrote huge diaries about uh, what had happened. I mean, every day he'd write what was going on at the time. One of the reasons he was so keen King. on it because he wrote these diaries. But he gave them to his son, and the, and his son put them in the attic. And the family said they didn't really want to read them because they had gone through such a terrible time in the Second World War living in Berlin that they didn't want to read about more suffering. So these, these diaries sat there for years. And then somebody wrote something about him in a German book, just a short bit. And his daughter, his granddaughter read this uh, um, book and contacted the author and said, you know, you might be interested in these diaries, which are sitting in my dad's house in the, new for- in the, in the, in the um, Black Forest. And the author went and looked at these diaries and then published them in German as just his diaries. And then they were published and they were translated into English. I mean, am I correct in thinking he they think he saved thousands of people? Absolutely. Yeah. He and uh, there were others as well, but he was in charge of this committee, mostly American missionaries, actually, and some doctors who set up a committee in Nanking headed by Jonathan Raba for this safe area for people who, who um, were being attacked by the Japanese. So why didn't the Japanese go into this area? I know they did They did it initially and then they sort of stopped um, the planes going, dropping bombs and things. Well, like, well Rab always thought that was because he put a big Nazi flag in his garden. He said once he did that, he noticed there were less uh, planes flying over. Um, I, I think it was because he, he and the other members of the committee were absolutely tireless in writing letters of complaint to the Japanese embassy in Nanking, and they just made a huge fuss. So I think that even though some of the civilians were killed, certainly, he did save thousands of lives. His great value was that he was a German, he was a Nazi, he was showing his swastika all over the shop, and the Japanese were very fond of their alliance with Germany. They were allies of Germany, and so respecting a man who was waving his swastika was sort of part of the, part of the business. I think it's understandable. But what we haven't talked about is, is something that I, maybe you're about to ask me, so I don't want to waste your time. But, but one thing that um, we've done is we've also talked to people who've survived, the, who still live. Um, and, and one very good example of that, uh, an interview we did with um, uh, a, a Syrian refugee, Ahmed Turkawi, who came out of Homs, which was hugely damaged in the, in the still fighting in Syria, of course. And his, his pharmacy very early on was rocketed. He's not quite sure which side did it. And he took his wife and kids, two little children, one age one and one age three, and his wife out of uh, Syria. They went the whole way to Turkey. They had to pay $8,500, dollars to a, uh, a smuggler to get them in a boat to take them to Greece. They got on the boat tiny little sort of dinghy, rubber dinghy, which didn't even have a steering column, uh, and, and with about 25 others, and they were taken across the Greek islands, very short distance, but nevertheless, very frightening trip. And they got the other side, and the driver of the boat, who was the smuggler, um, 
said, look, it's very rocky, this coast. I can't take you right in there. I'm going to have to ask you to swim the last bit. And he said, well, hang on, we can take us back to Turkey. We, we've got two tiny kids. We can't swim with the two kids. And the driver said, well, you're going to have to swim. He said, I'm not going to swim. He said, yes, you are. And chucked the children into the water. It was pitch dark. Chucked the two kids in the water. So Takawi and his wife mercifully could swim. And they jumped in. They dived in and, and managed to find the kids, swim to shore, and they were all right. And then they had a terrifying trip across Europe. Fortunately, they've got to Sweden now. And they're, they're in Sweden. We talk to them quite a lot. And they're in Sweden and they've got asylum there. It's terrific. But what a how really awful ordeal they had to go through. So one of my favourite sections was the innovation section. My old history teacher used to drill into us that, I think it's a Plato quote, he used to say necessity is the mother of invention and war obviously drives necessity and this drives technological advances, etc. So I was wondering, with that in mind, what do you think some of the greatest innovations to come out of war were? It's amazing how many things were invented during and for war. Instant coffee, for example. Zippers, they were invented for uniforms in the First World War. Um, sanitary towels, they started out as, as um, uh, bandages because they were very absorbent and then they moved on to be, be manufactured as, as sanitary towels. There, all, I mean, more modern uh, technology has, has really taken over, hasn't it, when it comes to war? Yes, of course. I mean, the terrible thing is that war does tend to invent things to kill people with that turn out to be quite useful for other purposes. Electronic things, for example, huge advances in radio and so on. All these things helped along a lot, tragically, but nevertheless, it's part of part of history, uh, helped along by the fact that they used to fight people. And of course, we spend huge amounts of money on making sure they work, things like drones and so on and so forth. And, and I mean, innovation is one of our themes. And under that theme, we have this wonderful man, Bethune, who invented mobile uh, blood transfusion, didn't he? That was an extraordinary invention for the Spanish Civil War. Then, of course, then snowballed into the, into, into, out of warfare into, into civilian life, hugely well, successful. Well, also Marie Curie had developed x-rays for a war. Penicillin was invented before the Second World War, but really didn't, wasn't widely used until the Second war, World War. So it's really interesting to delve down and see just how much of our modern life we owe to warfare. And just sort of as a roundup, if you could pick one story out of the book that really inspires you, um, who would you pick and why? I think one of the most exciting things we did was go down to Wiltshire and interview the wonderful old chap, old uh, 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 soldier, uh, Corin Purden, who went off in 1942, was a very young, 20-year-old uh, young commando. He went off to Saint-Nazaire. He was told to blow up the dry dock at uh, Saint-Nazaire, the port of Saint-Nazaire in Western France, because Hitler was planning to use this huge dry dock to look after the Tirpitz, this massive German battleship, which could cause such horrific damage to British and American fleets in the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, so Hitler wanted that dry dock preserved so that he could put the Tirpitz in there if he wanted to. Well, off went uh, Corin Purden with, a, with, with many others and a big fleet of ships to Saint-Nazaire. They arrived there. They managed to blow up the dry dock successfully. Brilliant operation. I mean, all the details are in that chapter in the book, which... Very exciting. The, there's, a, there's a wonderful American, old American destroyer that they pack with explosives and they ram it against the, the dry dock's gates and it blows up. Uh, but Purden is captured 
uh, as most of the British were, it was a huge operation, 600 people, of whom about 300 were captured by the Germans. And then you have the story of how Perton escaped from one prison camp and got imprisoned in another, went to Colditz in the end, couldn't escape from there. But he comes back and he, the losses in that operation were, were huge. But Perton still looks back and says, I'm so glad I went on that because we, we did huge damage to the Germans and I'm very proud of what I did. I mean, I think that's a wonderful story. I was particularly moved by the story of Helen Thomas, who was the wife of a British poet, Edward Thomas, and he died um, in the First World War. She was an example of someone who stayed at home while her watched her husband go off to pretty certain death. And she wrote the most moving account of their last days together with their three children. And I think that it, it just really brought home to me as a woman and a wife how it would have felt to watch your partner go off and assume that you would never see him again. And she, she, she wrote this book actually after the fact, but she was so devastated by his death that she wrote this book as therapy. And she describes their time together in the most poetic and beautiful language. And it is just, uh, you know, an unforgettable story. That was Anne McMillan and Peter Snow. War Stories, Gripping Tales of Courage, Cunning and Compassion is out now, published by John Murray. And now let's rejoin Rachel for this week's History News. A long-lost portrait by Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens has been rediscovered in a historic house in Glasgow. The 17th century painting depicts the first Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, who is believed to have been King James VI and I's lover. Although hanging in plain sight, the artwork was thought to have been a copy of the lost original that went missing almost four centuries ago. It wasn't until it was spotted in the gallery of Pollock House by Dr Bendor Grosvenor from BBC Four's Britain's Lost Masterpieces that its real status came to light. The portrait has since been authenticated as a Rubens by Ben van Beneden, a director of a Rubens museum in Antwerp. It will go on display at Glasgow Museum's flagship gallery, Kelvin Grove, today, Thursday the 28th of September. In other news, a Polish World War II veteran has come out top in an RAF campaign to find the best Spitfire pilot in history. Francis Szew Konicki, once the youngest squadron commander in the Polish Air Force, served as an officer in the RAF for more than 20 years. He received more than 325,000 votes in the People's Spitfire poll, which was hosted on the Telegraph's website earlier this month as part of plans to mark the 100-year anniversary of the RAF in 2018. Speaking this week from his care home on the south coast of England, Kornicki told the Telegraph that he was surprised and a little bewildered at the overwhelming support from the public. He was quick to point out that he was just one of a great many who helped win the war. Meanwhile, one of history's most puzzling questions, how the ancient Egyptians built the Great Pyramid of Giza, may have been solved. In a new documentary aired by Channel 4 earlier this week, archaeologists revealed how purpose-built boats, held together by ropes, were used to transport thousands of limestone blocks over 500 miles to the Giza site. The findings were based on the discovery of an ancient papyrus scroll written by a man who was in charge of workers who shipped materials along the River Nile. Now before we go, 
here's a reminder that our History Weekend event at Winchester is almost upon us. With speakers including Dan Jones, Yanina Ramirez, David Oloshoga and Michael Wood, it's an event that you won't want to miss. Some tickets are still available, so if you'd like to come along, head to historyweekend.com for more details of this and also our York Weekend. OK, well that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking to David Starkey about the Reformation. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.